Hey, Joel. What's up, Tim? Doesn't Broken Arrow sound less like a movie title and more like a derogatory nickname that Iron Man would give to Hawkeye? That's a little super critical, Tim. Welcome to another episode of the Super Critical Podcast, where we delve into the fun and sometimes nonsensical way pop culture and nuclear topics interact. We watch a movie or a TV show about nuclear weapons and then proceed to needlessly overanalyze it. My name is Tim Westmeyer. I am a nuclear enthusiast who has studied the history and policy of nuclear weapons and nuclear energy for about 10 years, and as a result, I can't stop myself from scoffing at the movie screen when a film does dumb things with nuclear weapons. Fortunately, I have my patient and well-meaning co-host there to shush me back into the shadows. This is Joel, the well-intentioned man on the street who knows nothing about nuclear issues, and thus it makes me completely qualified to be on this podcast because I count myself as a friend of Tim's. Today, we had the absolute pleasure of re-watching from many years ago the movie Broken Arrow. Prepare to go ballistic, they tell us on the poster. Uh, this was released in 1996, one of the uh, first, not the first, but one of the first John Woo movies to, uh, to be made for a U.S. audience. The other ones include some of our favorites, uh, Face Off, Mission Impossible 2, Hard Boiled, and Hard Target. Like, he likes those two-name movies quite a bit. He's a man of simple tastes. Well, also written by the same guy that did Speed, a couple episodes of Justified, when I know one of the shows you like quite a bit as well as 14 episodes of the Nickelodeon classic Hey Dude. That's quite a transition to go from a Nickelodeon show to nuclear weapons being lost, lots of gunfights, bloody scenes, death destruction, you know? Well, most of of, uh, Broken Arrow... He's got a broad range, right? Yeah, well, most of Broken Arrow takes place in the desert anyway, so I would like to think that maybe Hey Dude prepared... Um, the writer for what you need to do to be able to have a nice desert movie. You know, I thought about doing a lot of preparation with the military, uh, you know, outside advisors, but then I thought, you know, Nickelodeon was all the prep I needed. Perfect. So, Joel, tell us a little bit about this movie. Well, we've got an epic John Woo cast, uh, one featuring a number of characters that certainly show up uh, in future movies. John Travolta plays Major Vic Deacons. And Christian Slater plays Captain Riley Hale. Now, they're two Air Force partners who are co-pilots piloting one of the – I believe it's a fictitious stealth bomber Mm -hmm. that we'll get into. Um, And then we have a few other key folks. Samantha Mathis playing Terry Carmichael. uh, One one of my favorites, Princess Daisy from the Super Mario Brothers movie. Yes. Again, another artist with broad range. Uh Uh, We have Delroy Lindo who plays Colonel Max Wilkins who, uh, if you've seen a number of mid-90s action movies, you'll know he's, uh, he's definitely a, a common face, a uh, good actor there. And then we also have Bob Gutton playing Pritchett, who you may remember him as the Shawshank Redemption warden, who is certainly not the favorite character in Shawshank Redemption, mm-hmm. and neither is he a favorite character in this movie, playing a financier of terrorists stealing nuclear weapons only to hold 
an entire city hostage uh, to demand hundreds of millions of dollars. So well, I do like to think this less range, perhaps. I like to think that this movie, this that particular character, is just a an alternate universe, universe version of the warden from Shawshank Redemption, which is my favorite oh. movie. So in, in a world, maybe it's his grandson. Could be his grandson. In you one know? world, yeah, exactly. In one world, he's um, stealing money from prisons, and on the other side, he's stealing money from the U.S. federal government with nuclear weapons. Right. I would love to watch movies where Bob Gutton, just a series of movies where he steals things from people. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's great. And uh, don't forget about Howie Long, wonderful oh, guy. How could we forget about Howie Long, who plays Kelly? Again, why do we need first names? Because, you know, it's a military movie, so we'll just keep it to the, the last names. Uh, now, obviously, Howie Long is the former NFL player and commentator, um, but a lot of people don't <laughs> don't fully remember and appreciate his roles in, in feature films. Uh, this was one of his early films, I believe. I do remember as a kid going to one of his films, I'll have to look up the title, where he played a uh, firefighter who got into an action movie. It was like he was going after that you know, rock Dwayne, the rock Johnson type, uh, action movie, mm-hmm. uh, brand. And he was also at a movie called war games, but it was unrelated something from 2001. But I like to think that he channeled the war games mythos and being a, a nuclear weapons. Uh, what was he special? He was some sort of search and rescue. Right. To recover the nuclear weapons. Yep. But I remember this movie did pretty well. Didn't it do pretty good in the box office? It was, it had about a, a budget of about 50 million, um, which, you know, We'll see how it does at the box office. Came in at overall 150 million if you include domestic and international box office. Which and and I looked it up. I think it actually did better internationally than domestically, which I guess isn't too surprising. John Woo he had a pretty uh, big international following. I did look it up on my random Google inflation calculator. 150 million dollars in 1996 would it have been uh, about 227 million today? So Mm -hmm. quarter of a billion dollars. Not too bad for uh, Hong Kong director, second feature film after Jean-Claude Van Damme coming back. It's no surprise that uh, they would have tried to follow up with that with another action movie, which we saw with Face Off, obviously, including John Travolta, amongst others. So audiences clearly enjoyed it. But what about the critics? Do they like it? Well, you know, sometimes the people and uh. the, the establishment, you know, sometimes they just don't get along. Uh, it... it it did not do well amongst critics. Uh, if you look at some of the kind of more contemporary rating services like Rotten Tomatoes and things like that, obviously they weren't around in 1996. But um, currently, if you look up the numbers, you're looking at around 50%. So, Ouch. Uh, yeah, not exactly Shakespeare, huh. but, um, you know, Shakespeare with Howie Long. Well, one, of know, the, one of the things I saw was – Not uh, bad. Yeah, not too bad. Well, one of the things I saw Roger Ebert when they had – when he was uh, – had his show with uh, Gene Siskel – they both ended up giving it two thumbs down, um, and it, Gene Siskel originally thought it was not bad, but Ebert convinced him. Supposedly, one of the only times on, in in the middle of the show, he one of them changed their mind. So in real time, in real time, they went from enjoying this nice little feature to to not. So I guess clearly a disparity between <laughs> the critics and the audiences. You got to think that might be kind of embarrassing, though, if if you go back and say, well, "What was the one time where you changed your mind?" Was it you know, it wasn't Citizen Kane, no. It was Broken Arrow. But, that, was, that was an epic showdown. So Broken Arrow is a movie that clearly motivates people that have seen it one way or the other. But tell us what happens in this movie, Joel. Well, at the outset, I guess I should say spoiler alert for anyone who has not yet seen the movie. Although if you've been listening to our podcast 
over the last few episodes, you're probably already prepared for a full rendition and run through of the plot line. Hard to overanalyze something that you can't spoil too. Exactly. Well, there's some interesting uh, details about this movie, not just the people who are in it, uh, how much money it made, but also kind of uh, what was the development of the movie, um, how did it get made, and and what things didn't go into it. Uh, Apparently, reportedly, John Travolta was actually given the opportunity to play either the good guy or the bad guy. Mm. Uh, I think we both agree that John Travolta would have come across much better in in his role as Deacons, the bad guy, than – the Christian Slater character. He's much creepier been... as the villain. Right. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think you saw why he probably was... Well, it's funny with Face Off, right, where he literally played both a good guy mm. and a bad guy. But I, I imagine, I presume that it was that first movie where he played such a, a unique villain that that was what propelled them to, to keep him as a bad guy or villain for... For Face Off, where he could literally, you know, play both roles kind another, of at the same time. Another John Woo movie. Uh, there's some. There's clearly exactly. some some John Woo trademarks in this one. Uh, I remember he gets, there's lots of double guns. Oh, definitely uh, double handguns. I was a little mad that you didn't get as many trench coats mm. as you would normally get from some of the early John Woo movies, like The Killer, Hard Boiled, uh, things like that. Had a number of standoffs where yeah, like, you've got you yeah. know multiple people pointing guns at each other, and then having various dialogue with each other. Uh, I did appreciate it. Uh, I, I felt like he almost gave himself uh, some kind of homage where at one point they're pointing guns at each other and the guy says, oh, it looks like we've got a standoff. Yeah. And Christian Slater's character, Hale, responds by shooting the guy in the knee and yelling out, no, we don't. So I thought that was pretty good. Hmm. Um, and then some classic uh, yelling through walls or various dialogue between inanimate objects mm-hmm. uh, where – you know, they're not pointing guns at each other, but they might as well be kind of going back and forth, talking trash to each other. De- definitely some signature traits, but no, but no, no doves. No doves. No we doves. Butterflies, but no doves. Why the butterflies? I, I, maybe he was trying to, you know, do a, you know, maybe I'll try the butterflies first. Mm-hmm. And then if it goes over well with the American audience, I can yeah. move into dove well, territory. Maybe, maybe doves maybe doves aren't native to the Utah desert landscape. Right. Or, I don't know. Maybe the radiation would have killed the doves. But not mm. the butterflies, and so you know he had to he had to scramble. He's like, I got all these doves, but well, they're ra- dead. Radi- I radiation, need butterflies. Radiation kills butterflies, but it mutates doves into fierce beasts. I think those are the ones in the out the the Hitchcock movie Birds. I think that's they are radiated. So exactly, it was just a safety question, to be right. honest. Now, speaking of death, though, it was interesting also to point out that Christian Slater's character Hale was actually supposed to die. Uh, in the early development of the movie. Hmm. Um, but obviously near the end, I don't know, maybe we got some Hollywood uh, executives interfering, saying, whoa, 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 we can't have Christian Slater's character dying. He's the main character. Let's mm-hmm. make sure we have kind of a a happy ending after John Travolta gets killed. So as far as a, a plot, like we mentioned, uh, Hale and Deacons, Christian Slater and, and John Travolta's characters play Air Force co-pilots. They undergo a... Apparently, top secret training mission where they will be flying a, a B three stealth bomber with two live nuclear weapons uh, across the Utah desert. We understand they don't give too many details, but we understand it's a training exercise for a nearby Air Force base to try mm. to track the stealth bomber to see if they can pick up the stealth bomber after it goes into stealth mode. And I think they're worried. They were worried that the radioactivity coming off the bombs would make the B3 not as uh, stealth as it should be. So 
I don't remember that part when I was a kid seeing this movie. So actually mm-hmm. coming into it and watching it again, that actually makes at least a justification for why they have nuclear weapons as opposed to, you know, dummy warheads. Right, right, right. So we get into the flight. This is early on in the movie. Uh, come to find out that John Travolta's character, Deacons, is uh, a little crazy. Uh, not uh, he's not fully uh, you know upstairs. He's not, got the crazy eyes. Yeah, he's uh, he's taking a turn for the worse. Uh, we find out that he uh, he basically tries to overtake the plane, tries to kill Hale, and basically ends up um, jettisoning the two nuclear weapons on board. You see them parachuting away. Tries to kill Hale, ends up kicking him out of the the plane actually. So he's parachuting away, and then he himself. Uh, bails out of the plane the plane crashes and right before he uh, bails out he sends one last transmission saying that Hale lost it and that he has to jump Mm. out of the plane so there's all this confusion on the government end where all of a sudden they have a b3 stealth bomber Mm -hmm. that's blown up they have two nuclear weapons that are completely gone they don't know where it is and then their two pilots are gone so what we have next is Hale, Christian Slater's character, is picked up by a local park ranger. Who's, Terry. Terry, who's just trying to figure out what's going on so she can leave, get off her shift, and then go feed her dog, as she says. Although she's very, very aggressive right at the beginning. Like, she sees the pilot come out of an airplane and then proceeds to draw a gun on him. Right. There's no, there's no mincing words here. She pulls that three fifty seven out and... Basically says you're under arrest. She takes she takes park security very seriously. Right now, here's the interesting thing about that. Rather than saying, "Oh, excuse me, uh, park ranger, another person of authority," I'm also person of authority in the military. Let me show you my mm-hmm. military ID. No, no, no. Instead, Hale proceeds to uh, basically attack her, resist arrest, mm-hmm. grab the gun. Uh, but fortunately, neither one of them kills each other. They, after a 10-minute battle scene, uh, hand-to-hand combat, come to terms and figure out that, no, 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 he hasn't done anything wrong. He was simply um, backstabbed by his co-pilot and is now trying to figure out what Deacons is up to. So what we have is the two, uh, Terry and Hale, going off. They track down Deacons, who at this point has connected with a series of compatriots, a couple of random special forces, mercenary types, who are intent on getting the two nuclear weapons. And as we find out through the dialogue, they're going to actually uh, hold the nuclear weapons up for ransom mm-hmm. uh, for a pretty big sum, a couple hundred million dollars. Um, well, I think they mentioned, right, that they were going to blow up one of them in a cave to show that they could do it and that they were willing to do it, right? And then they were going to use the other one somewhere as like a hostage. We'll blow this up unless you pay us. X amount of money. Right. So fortunately, they had two nuclear weapons because that would be kind of hard to pull off if you only had one. Mm -hmm. Um, But Terry and Hale, they're able to track uh, Deacon's crew on their trucks to an abandoned mine where we have this interesting exchange between Deacon's and Hale where uh, Hale essentially tries to disarm one of the nuclear weapons. Mm -hmm. This This is after Hale steals both of them from John Travolta. So they steal the nuclear weapons. They take it to an abandoned mine only to find out that Travolta's crew was actually going to go to that mine anyway. Oh. They're already prepared to, to set up the nuclear weapons there. And they try to disarm the weapon. But in doing so, they actually arm the weapon because Deacon's character was one step ahead of them. The old switcheroo. Exactly. Nuclear weapon style. And so uh, 
one nuclear weapon, which we'll get into a little bit later, ends up actually detonating. However, Hale and Terry are able to get away, as well as Deacons, his crew, including Howie Long. But not, not before they, uh, an EMP sets off a helicopter and makes it fall down onto the, uh, onto the ground. Of course. How could you have a nuclear blast without an electromagnetic pulse? Uh, so uh, once they're separated, they are able to track Deacons and Howie Long. <laughs> I'm just going to call him Howie Long. I'm not going to call him Kelly. I'm just going to call him Howie Long the whole time. Well, it's funny. All, all these people in the movie, the, whether or not they're male or female, all kind of have uh, gender-neutral um, names, like Deke and Kelly and Riley and Terry. Yeah. I almost wonder if they wrote the screenplay without anyone really in mind, and they just started like throwing in characters. As they, they change uh, it around, yeah. yeah exactly. So, uh, so after the first nuclear weapon goes off, they're separated. Uh, fortunately, they at first, uh, Hale thinks that they're targeting St. Jude Hospital in Salt Lake City, um, but because of a key um, boxing match that uh, Christian Slater's character had with John Travolta at the beginning of the movie, uh, Hale is reminded that Deacons had a uh, was fond of boxing moves and boxing strategy and thought that he'd be pulling a rope-a-dope, which is mm. to feign like you're going in one direction while going in another. So instead of looking at Salt Lake City, Hale decides on a whim, no, I think he's going to head for Denver in the opposite direction. Which, if you're in the military at this point, and you're figuring out where are we going to direct our resources, it's funny that they would say, ah, we're going to go with the boxing strategy mm-hmm. and, and respond to that. I mean, you really, you really learn a band when you're in the, in the ring. Right, exactly. It's like, we've got an entire military force ready to go, but we can only go in one direction. Also, couldn't they just you know, see on radar where the train's going? But maybe I don't know about train radar. Right. That, that's advanced technology. We're only getting that today. They didn't have that in 1996. Mm-hmm. Come on. So we, we, uh, they track them down to uh, a train. There's an epic final fighting scene where we have Christian Slater going up against John Travolta the, and his chin dimple. <laughs> and that the, thing is de- a deadly weapon for oh sure. Yeah. Ugh, they should register that. Right. And then the third, of, uh, third and fourth helicopter destruction. Right. We were trying to keep track of all the helicopters that blow up in this film. And, and it, it is, said a $50 million, $50 million budget. I bet about half of that went into yeah, the helicopters. Probably about $20 million just went for the helicopters. You know, I'm wondering, like, well, you know, it was like True Lies where they had to, like, keep building the bridge. Oh, maybe yeah. they rebuilt the helicopter only to blow it up again. Well, maybe if you buy helicopters in bulk. Maybe you get a discount. Yeah. yeah. They're at Costco for the day. Oh, and, perfect. Uh, you know, they only had four. They're like, all right, we'll go take all of them. Oh, you can't go yeah. into Costco without buying a helicopter. Right. I mean, John Woo is probably like, are we good? Oh, no, I think we're pretty low on these helicopters, so let's just, you know, throw in. Or maybe they accidentally, he's like, we just wanted one. He's like, oh, I thought you wanted three. I was mm-hmm. like, well, okay, what are we going to do with three helicopters? I guess we could throw, you know, put some explosions in there. So. Boom. But anyway, so there's a final epic fight scene where John Travolta, he realizes that his plans, he's been caught. Uh, it's only a matter of time before the military closes in. He tries to detonate the nuclear weapon. Uh, and thankfully... Uh, in an epic scene where they both have firearms, weapons, no, 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 they both throw down their guns and essentially finish the fight with a boxing match because obviously that's the way to go when you're fighting over nuclear weapons. And of course, Hale defeats Deacons. Terry is uh, is able to survive unharmed. Bomb's disarmed. Bomb is disarmed. Flies through the air. Flies through the air. Through John Travolta. <laughs> through the train. 
Out the window. Yeah. I will have to say that is probably the most creative way I've seen a director use a nuclear weapon to mm-hmm. kill someone. Well, it's I funny. think there's some traditional ways yeah. that nuclear weapons kill people. That, you know, chest wound, that's pretty ingenious. Not bad. Not, not only was the, the warhead outside of the missile, so it was just by itself, but it still flew through the air. It's like right. it, even without its wings, it still found a way to fly through the air and get somebody. <laughs> I don't know if there's a metaphor there for something, but uh, it was a beautiful it was a beautiful scene with some nice banjo music right. playing in the background for some reason. You know, it's probably like I can't have doves, but I can make that nuclear weapon fly. Oh, perfect! There you go. I think we just explained it. Right. Well, Should have been in slow mo. As promised in our last episode, we took some questions from podcast listeners after we announced that Broken Arrow would be our next film. Uh, some of these came through Twitter, some of them came through Facebook, some of them came through our email. And uh, if you want to submit questions on your own, you can do so. We'll talk about it at the end of this episode, um, how you're able to do it. But the five things I think I want to really talk about and overanalyze and scoff at and all that kind of stuff for this. Uh, so the first one we'll talk about is military terminology, like Broken Arrow. There's a joke in the movie about it, this. what's more scary, the fact that this happens or it happens so often that we have an encyclopedia and a a dictionary set, it. term for it. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'll go through that. Uh, two – Underground nuclear explosion. So it blows up in this movie underground in the mine shaft. But does it look like it's right? We'll go through. We have a lot of history of underground nuclear explosions, so we can find out how they portrayed that. Uh, three, how easy is it to disarm and rewire a nuclear bomb? It seems like it happens in lots of movies, and in this one, it happens pretty easily. It's I have like some opinions on that. cars in action movies. It's yep. like apparently everyone can do it. Everyone can do 20 it. 20 seconds. Everyone, everyone in movies and those kind of things always has like, yeah, I had a rough past. Right. <laughs> and I can do this. Um, four, we'll talk about the EMP nonsense that it's in this movie, the one that knocked out the helicopter and stopped some watches and all that. And finally, we'll talk about examples of bombs falling out of airplanes when you don't want them to and what happened when those uh, did occur. So one of our listeners, uh, James, asked us to talk about the title of the movie, Broken Arrow. Is this a term that's used by the military or just the – Name of a John Woo folk band or something, Broken Arrow. So that would be something I think on an they only got cover. an EP. You know, I don't think they, they got the full record deal e- for an EMP. Uh, oh, an EMP. That's pretty good. So the U.S. Department of Defense uh, appropriated some Native American terminology to create a list of phrases and words to signify different types of accidents related to nuclear weapons. Uh, most of this is for internal use, but it's also how the event is uh, reported to the public. These terms are found in a couple different official documents, but the big one is called the Nuclear Accident and Incident Public Affairs Guidance. It's a DOD directive. There's a couple different phrases here uh, that the movie does. Uh, Broken Arrow is the one that's the title of the movie. The, that's an accident that causes the unauthorized launch or jettison of a nuclear weapon but does not risk nuclear war. It could include things like a fire, uh, an explosion, the release of radioactivity – or the bomb simply falling off the airplane while it's on the tarmac, those kind of things. So when the movie starts, the broken arrow piece of it makes sense because an accident that causes a jettison of the bomb, and that's where it starts. But then the movie should quickly move to the other phrase that they use, which is called empty quiver, the loss, theft, or seizure of a nuclear weapon. Another phrase that they have in the, in the terminology set that's kind of fun Dull sword, a nuclear weapon that is damaged but did not go boom. So 
something that's broken. <laughs> is that the technical term? Yeah. Tip? Not, not go boom. It uh, does not go boom. It did not explode. It's broken. Uh, but I can see the radio. I can see the radio chatter. It's like, can you confirm? Boom. No. No boom. No boom. All right, good. Uh, bent spear is another one. That's a damaged nuclear weapon without harm done to the public or has any sort of risk of detonation. This is one of the most often occurring one. It's usually during training exercises or transport. Again, falling off the bomb rack, um, falling out of the airplane, someone hitting it with a hammer on accident. These things happen quite a bit. Uh, and one of the last ones I want to talk about is Faded Giant. And that's a uh, malfunctioning or damaged nuclear power reactor, usually a military one. Just thought that's kind of a fun one. But if you don't like these terms and you think they're boring, you can spice it up a little bit. You can add a prefix to it. You can, say, you can say pinnacle, which makes the incident immediately reportable to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of, St- of Staff. Very serious. These are the, one of the big pinnacle. ones. Pinnacle. Okay. And you can also add nuke flash, N-U-C-F-L-A-S-H. It's the unauthorized deployment or detonation of a nuclear weapon that could possibly lead to nuclear war. So very, very, <laughs> very serious. Wait, so so you'd make it pinnacle broken arrow? So the movie starts as a broken arrow when the okay. recovery team doesn't know yet that the nuclear bomb has been stolen. But then it evolves into a pinnacle empty quiver. But that doesn't sound as cool. Okay. Uh, it still sounds better than what Tom Arnold called a bright boy alert in True Lies. But right, right. it would be a pinnacle empty quiver because it's something that is really serious, that it's clearly that someone has stolen something. Right. So it would be reported to the Joint Chiefs so they can coordinate mm-hmm. a military-wide strategy. But it's something that a bomb was lost and then clearly indicated to be theft. So then you have to move on to mm. the next steps there. Maybe uh, they ran out of characters on the posters. So yeah. it's like, well, we have Broken Arrow. We could throw the pinnacle in, but – we just don't have the budget for it. They do. We're capped at fifty million. I'm sorry, John. Well, it's like Maybe. a tele- it's like a telegram. They pay by the uh, the type there. Look, the, you the could designers cut designers. You could the cut the, the number of b- butterflies down by half, but you know, I don't think that's gonna you know show your artistic vision. It wouldn't work well. Um, so the vast majority of incidents within the U.S. Uh, nuclear arsenal history have been broken arrows and bent spears. For example, according to a formerly declassified document that was uh, a FOIA request by. Journalist Eric Schlossiger, uh, he's the author of Command and Control, a book that we quote quite a bit. Um, it's a 245-page document called The Accidents and Incidents Involving Nuclear Weapons, Summer 1957 to Spring 1967. There were hundreds of broken arrows and bent spears, mostly minor reports involving a bomb falling off a loading rack or a missile catching fire or even one time a weapon rolling off the side of an aircraft carrier into the ocean. Minor, but minor relative to the idea of a bomb going off somewhere. So, because I mean, these are weapons and that are very dangerous, but they're still things handled by people falling off an aircraft. I I, I think the term for that is just whoops. Whoops. No, I'm sorry, pinnacle whoops. Pinnacle whoops. Yeah, I believe that's what they they thought about that. Maybe they changed. I want a T-shirt that says pinnacle whoops. Uh, But (laughs) another source on this, uh, Chuck Hansen's 1988 book, U.S. Nuclear Weapons: The Secret History. He documented about 32 cases of broken arrows from 1950 to 1980. So in that 30-year period, um, he had about 32 cases. Other people say it was even as high as 65 between 1945 and 1989. Uh, About half a dozen or so U.S. nuclear weapons went missing and are still missing. 
um, we'll go through a couple of those different examples. I'm but sorry. Could you could you just repeat that? Half Tim? a dozen or so U.S. nuclear weapons went missing and are still missing. Hmm. All right. Well, when incidents do occur and the military needs to notify the public, similar to this movie when they were talking about whether or not to let people know about it, well, the Air Force has a procedure that they call Moist Mop. That's their code name for don't scare the locals during a nuclear cleanup. Uh, secrecy outweighs transparency in these cases quite a bit. The second thing that we should talk about is the first nuclear bomb that went off in the movie, the one that was triggered by uh, Christian Slater pushing the code too many times uh, that was incorrect, and then it eventually disarms the missile. But turns out the old switcheroo had actually armed the missile. This was supposedly done underground with no radiation leak, as evidenced by the still-alive butterflies. This is a convenient way for covering up the incident, but is it that easy to actually seal off a nuclear explosion underground? Most of the nuclear tests conducted by the United States, and all of them since the 1963 Limited Test Ban Treaty, uh, once that treaty banned the testing in the atmosphere, were conducted underground. So the first one of these underground tests occurred in November of 51 at the Nevada test site. Well, the goal for scientists and military personnel that conduct these underground tests was to measure performance of the bomb, such as the yield, but without releasing any radioactive elements into the air, which would quite upset the American public and the international community, which had grown very wary of fallout from the hundreds of atmospheric tests or those done near the ocean surface. But what usually happens in an underground test, which can occur either in a vertical shaft that you drill into the ground or in a horizontal tunnel that's built into a mountainside, those are the two ways we usually do underground tests, is a nuclear detonation will vaporize the closest rock that's right around where the bomb is detonated. And then a, when it's underground in a vertical shaft, what is called a subsidence crater can form on the surface, even though the explosion took place underground. So when you look at satellite images of most of the underground nuclear tests, you can go on Google Satellite or Google Earth and check this out. It looks like craters. They're giant explosions that occurred underground, vaporized all of the surrounding dirt, and then the dirt is it's still sunk. a vacuum. It's still an area. So the dirt above it, right. that hole has to be filled by something. So the dirt comes down from the top, and they have algorithms that can track how long it takes usually for that crater to form. So – if you're going for a big bomb, one of the ways that they can quickly see what the whether or not it was a success is by how big this subsidence crater is. I was reading a story about a guy who was given a tour of the Nevada test site to a journalist, and he pointed out one of the craters over there and said, yeah, that was my first test. Uh, it didn't work that well, so you don't see much of a crater. But that one over there, that one did great. Now that's a big crater. That's a crater. That's a, that's a crater from a di- dinosaur-killing asteroid. Um, now, but t- Tim, so with, with in the movie though, um, I imagine in those tests they were pretty technical. They, you know, they mm-hmm. they made sure to close all the doors, lock everything, yeah. you know, so you would limit the radiation. Obviously, you see a blast come out of the, well, you know, it's a mine shaft. There were still openings as far as the opening of the mine when you know um, Deacons and his crew leaves and stuff like that. So, uh, you know, hail takes the the butterflies and says, oh, you know, the radiation hasn't leaked. But I mm-hmm. imagine some of the radiation would have leaked, right? Well, well even the best prepared test underground can still fail the mission. Um, some of the recent North Korean tests have entered a small amount of radiation 
into the air, which was able, to, which we used to determine the exact nature of the test, whether it was plutonium, uranium. You can test that by the radioactive debris that goes up in the air. But one of the most famous examples of what testers call a containment failure sounds a lot like Ghostbusters when you put the trap in the containment system and the light is green, the trap is clean, yeah, yeah. and containment failures. Uh, well, in December of 1970, the Bainberry test, it was a 10-kiloton device that was exploded about 900 feet below the Earth's surface. So shorter distance down than the 2,000 feet that Terry mentions in this movie where the, that was that mine shaft. But a huge plume of radioactive dust could be seen from all the way to Las Vegas, vented out into the Yucca test site with radioactive uh, debris detected as far as Idaho, Washington, and Oregon. And this was a test done in our Nevada test site. Testing was suspended for six months, and it was determined that an unexpectedly high buildup of water content near the detonation site weakened the surrounding rock. So even when you try to be able to prevent um, radioactive debris from entering the surface, it can still happen. So when that bomb goes off and you see explosions coming out of the um, the entrance as well as out of where they were really far away, Terry and Riley, where they were by the river – Clearly, something leaked out that's going to go somewhere, whether it be radioactive debris, um, other things attached to the radioactive material attached to the particles in the air. It seems like it'll get out somewhere. So when they say at the end of the movie that it's just an earthquake and that's the the plan, that's the that's the message they give the public. Seems like it would be able to get out. Hmm. Now, I I thought I I just have to comment at this point where going back to kind of this Hollywood magic Mm -hmm. or lack thereof. It was interesting to to see, you know, the thing goes off and then they have a really interesting response where, you know, the the you know, the the colonel and the White House guy, they're in McMurrin Air Force Base, which we don't really know how close it is in relation to, you know, the plane crash yeah. or the mine. It seems like it's really close because when the bomb goes off, they all Right. They have that- this kind of old school, you know, Star Trek experience where everyone's shaking going Whoa! and all they're really and they're, doing is moving they're back all and moving forth. their yeah. hands around and like chairs are kind of flying around and someone i guess throws papers into the air because obviously that would make you uh you know if you have an earthquake and i thought wow that's a that's a pretty strong response maybe a little over the top well maybe when, i'm being super critical. Well, when we test, yeah that, that seems a little super critical but i think that when we used to test nuclear bombs in nevada at the nevada test site people in las vegas didn't fall out of their chair when they were eating breakfast, like it's not the blast radius or the shockwave, the shockwave does not travel that far. There might be a bit of a tremor record to be able to record it somewhere, but unless they were right on top of that, where that was happening, it, that seemed like it was very weird. The, the other thing I thought seemed a little over the top was speaking of the, the shockwave where you actually, um, and this gets into the, the EMP, which we'll talk about in a second, but se- separate from that, the, shock wave mm-hmm. leading to this kind of cascading uh earth shooting up into the air uh you know as slowly the the shock wave apparently works its way underground and you actually see it kind of moving the humvees up and yeah. down seemed a little little too much well little... i think that's funny this movie gets some things right quite a, quite, quite well you can clearly see a crater depression form on the surface right. after the bomb right. goes off but it forms way too fast the ground moves following the shockwave, but it moves too slow. So 
there are some great videos if you go on YouTube and you search underground nuclear explosion or underground nuclear test, you can see these things happening. We'll link to some of them in our uh, podcast notes. You can see a bomb. You'll, you'll hear the countdown, and then it will happen, and you see a shockwave fly hundreds of feet, almost you know miles, very, very quickly. But the crater takes a little bit of time to form because it takes dirt time for it to come down. Now, an, an, an underground nuclear test is not as iconic as a, a mushroom cloud in the air, but right. it's still pretty powerful. So it's, they, they do an interesting job with this movie. But on the flip side, you can clearly see a fireball explode out of the mine surface. Uh, there's an escape path that our heroes take. means there was probably some sort of amount of radiation that leaked into the air. Not easily something that could be covered up with the uh, earthquake excuse. So there was even a trend in the Cold War, mostly in the Soviet Union, but definitely took place in the United States as well, of developing what the countries called peaceful nuclear explosions. These were devices for civilian uses, such as mining operations. Probably not what Christian Slater, though, had in mind uh, with that mine shaft. But you know, also used in dam building, um, although we're not drinking that water, I hope. Uh, natural gas extraction. I know one way to extract that natural gas. You just blow that up. Uh, that fracking was bad. Um, but also shutting off oil pipeline fires, similar to what they do, what, uh, what they what? do in the Will Be Blood, where they make an explosion that stops that you know basically causes dirt to fall in and stop uh, oil leaking out. They they did this, and the, when we had so this, this was actually done, or this was discussed. This was planned. done. It was, was done several done. times by the Soviet Union. They offered. Some Yikes. version of that technology after the BP oil spill and the fire that was when the leaks were still happening, they were talking about doing versions of that. This was in the in the news. So these things existed. Uh, India, when they first tested in 1974, claimed their bomb was a peaceful nuclear explosion, and the U.S. promoted this concept through what they called the Operation Plowshares, with dozens of tests to demonstrate the potential of this program until. Uh, I would say cool, cooler heads prevailed, and it was shut down in the late seven, 1970s. So I also find this pretty funny. The movie comes out in 1996. It's the same year that the Comprehensive Nuclear Test Ban Treaty opened for signature. This treaty outlaws the test of nuclear weapons in any atmosphere, above ground or below ground, and it uses a what's called a, a layered international monitoring system, which has over two, 300 seismic hydroacoustic infrasound and radio nuclide monitoring stations to verify whether a nuclear explosion has taken place anywhere in the world. So there are 170 seismic stations that transmit data instantly once a explosion takes place somewhere to CTBT headquarters in Vienna. And they've gotten very good at telling the difference between nuclear tests underground and earthquakes. So the U.S. probably could cover it up back in 1996 in movie land, but they wouldn't be able to do that anymore. They've this this data is sent over immediately, and they'd be able to figure out that a bomb actually went off because they can tell the difference between an earthquake and a a nuclear bomb, especially at the yield make a ton yield of the bomb in the movie. So you're you're saying like in a matter of minutes, State Department, White House would already start getting calls from various countries around the world. Very angry phone calls. There should be a, an angry phone call montage in this movie. How could you let an angry? crazy John Travolta out loose. I mean, what were you thinking? The third thing we should talk about is uh, a running theme in action movies with nuclear weapons. Can the hero disarm the warhead as a clock is slowly ticking down to zero? Or how does a villain arm the nuclear bomb with a countdown timer in the first place? Why, 
Why do these things have countdown timers? Well, Deacon seems to know everything about army sequences, but how does he seem to know that? It's very unlikely that an Air Force pilot would know how to do any of this. In the book, The Bomb, A History, by Dr. Stephen Younger, a retired senior fellow at the Los Alamos National Laboratory who worked on bomb research and design, guy who probably knows what he's talking about, explained that taking possession of a nuclear weapon does not imply that one has the capability to actually explode it. In contrast to what is shown in movies, nuclear weapons do not have a red button on their side with an LED display counting down the seconds until detonation. Most are tightly sealed packages with only one single electrical connector serving as the only interface to the outside world. Looking at a connector would provide no indication of what that wire does. Dismantling the weapon would provide more insight, but there, most subsystems are sealed in their own cases. So, of course, a weapon could be disassembled and then rebuilt with a new control system, but this would require extreme care, in most cases an intimate knowledge of the weapon's design, in order to avoid destroying key components. And it's interesting with the movie, especially because you hear Deacon's, Mm -hmm. Travolta's character, talk about, on a couple of different occasions, the fact that he's flown combat missions, I think in, in the first Persian Gulf War, so, you know, it seems like his nuclear tour of duty is actually a more recent that, thing. That is a good point. I didn't it's think not about ex- that. It's not like he's been flying, you know, nuclear weapons around the country or around the world for years and years. Well, was it Howie Long that knew how to do this stuff? Because he also didn't know about an EMP in the movie. That's true. That's true. Well, so my, my theory then that I've concocted over the last 45 seconds, uh, well thought through, obviously, mm-hmm. is – Perhaps in Hollywood Magic Land, you know, he's flown these weapons and over time he's slowly developed, you know, some, you know, he's looked it up. He's tried to figure out, he's asked key questions to some interesting individuals about, you know, how does this work? You know, Mm -hmm. I am flying it. Maybe I should know some things. But I would think getting back to reality, if all of a sudden you had your pilots asking about, well, how would I, you know, unwrap this thing, maybe change the wiring so that when you try to, uh, you know, put too many false codes into it and break it down. I can actually rewire yeah. it to make it arm. Just hypothetically, you know, just hypothetically. You know, if you know, if, if one wanted to do that, well, how would you do that? That might well, raise some red flags. I'll, right? I'll let I'll let Stephen Younger continue on this point. Uh, he says in this book, to explode a nuclear weapon that was stolen, one must have an experienced person who knows how to operate it. Such people are very rare. Weapon designers know how a bomb works, but few know the types of signals, such as the timing uh, of when a bomb goes off, the voltage necessary, that must be set to detonate a weapon. Weapons maintenance personnel are trained to perform only a limited set of functions and are often ignorant of the details of a device of what they're working on. Only a few people in the world have the knowledge to cause an unauthorized detonation of a nuclear weapon. Now, based on that description, I would say – That's John Travolta. I would say it's not a B-2 pilot who boxes in his spare time. Yeah, B-3, Tim. B-3. B-3. My, my mistake. I mean, well, advanced stuff. So, But however, there are teams of uh, experts that are trained in how to disarm a bomb, the, the, at least those that are able to prevent one of their own warheads from detonating after an accident. In the course of research for this episode, I came across an interview with someone named uh, Matt Arnold who is a former Explosives Ordnance Disposal EOD technician. He talked about 
starting his training at Redstone Arsenal, an army post out in Alabama, before he did quite well and graduated onto the Naval Explosive Ordnance School in Maryland. If you're there, you're trained on how to safely dispose of all manners of explosives, but if you're lucky enough to study in Division 6, your portfolio includes nuclear weapons. Well, I guess it makes sense overall that you know you'd want very compartmentalized skill sets, right? One, so that you can have people who are as perfectly trained as mm-hmm. possible to deal with that very you know important task, whatever, however small it might be. But on the other end, it allows you to kind of divide and conquer, you know, as kind of an overall management of these world-ending weapons that you can kind of make sure this person with this skill set mm-hmm. isn't connected to this person with the, the subsequent skill set where you could actually have all these things put together to, to lead to catastrophe. It's a nuclear, an it's a nuclear enterprise. It's enterprise for a reason. It's, it's a very large organization with lots of people with very specialized skills. And you're right. They compartmentalize things to not only prevent this, but also for people to be able to specialize in their individual fields. Another listener question we have is talk about the portrayal of an electromagnetic pulse or EMP in this movie. How did it work? Did it look like a, what they did in the movie, is that actually how it would happen? Well, as we talked about earlier in the movie, right before the nuclear bomb goes off, John Travolta orders his team to stop the car, shut off all their electronic equipment, don't shoot the helicopter because, boom, bomb explodes underground, and then the military helicopter, which they call a gunship, just kind of looked like looked like New 7 helicopter, uh, lo- it loses power and crashes into the desert. The scene was definitely very exciting and definitely, you know, what, what a rush. Uh, as Don Travolta says, but would this actually happen? Probably not. You know, I've always wondered, you know, the EMP, my first exposure to it was Goldeneye. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you kind of had that vantage, that perspective on an EMP, then obviously you have this one. EMPs have become kind of almost like a mushroom cloud, like, oh, of course I know what an EMP will do. It'll blow out all these uh, circuitry, you know, devices mm-hmm. and stuff like that, but... But so EMPs are EMPs are definitely a thing um, that that happen after a nuclear explosion. And again, I have to keep quoting uh, Stephen Younger, but he has great explanation for this. When a nuclear explosion is detonated at a very high altitude, above several tens of miles, an EMP is produced, and it's directed down towards the ground. The mechanism for this is simple: gamma rays from a nuclear explosion travel downward and collide with atoms in the atmosphere. During those collisions. Gamma rays knock out an electron from an atom, producing an electrical current. These, the current generated by the gamma rays produces a radio signal, and this radio signal can disrupt or even destroy sensitive electronic equipment such as computers and communication systems. The consequences of such an attack are usually just limited to electronics, and contrary to what media reports show, the most likely effect from an EMP is upset rather than destruction, that is, Temporary scrambling of the memory of a computer or the frequency of a communications device, something easily corrected by rebooting or resetting the system, not a helicopter crashing down So it wouldn't even ground. kill it. You just have to restart it. It would be one of those things where unless the helicopter – I don't know what kind of helicopter this was, but if, unless the helicopter was like on autopilot driven by the electronics, it would still function. It's just those communication pieces and some of those elements mm-hmm. – the communications outside of that and some of those other electronics would, wouldn't function. But the helicopter maintenance part of it, the actual 
Right. Would, would, it would still it Unle- would still work. I guess unless there was some electrical device that was necessary for the continued you know, sure. fuel going into you know, the engine and all that stuff. But, but here's the thing. It, it, it's an, an underground nuclear explosion. Those do not produce an EMP because it needs to be at a high altitude because the gamma rays traveling downward at a high speed cause the radio signal. It's something that happens to happen above ground. And it has to have something that happens way above ground, several miles above the surface. They did some experiments on this during a series of uh, high-altitude nuclear tests called Operation Fishbowl. I always love the way they name these things. EMP disruptions were suffered above a KC-135, a photographic air, uh, aircraft flying about 190 miles from a 400 kiloton detonation in the air. Now, this was about 30 to 60 miles above ground. Despite these troubles and an EMP being uh, experienced, this plane was still able to land safely. So it's it's a little surprising that the helicopter exploded as it did, but it makes for a pretty good action sequence. One of many helicopter explosions. One of, yeah, one of four. Um, but again, it's the bomb went off underground. We don't have EMPs happen. I mean, we test, we test nuclear bombs underground when we did them with electronic equipment to monitor the yield results. Those did not go off with an EMP. So EMP is one of those things that happen in the movies, but it's not something that would, would happen in this one. And certainly a, you know, a, a Hollywood trick that, right. that directors and films have taken advantage of, of kind of moviegoers not really understanding how they work. And then you've got years and years of EMPs in, in, on the big screen, mm-hmm. and it's kind of formed the collective ignorance, I guess, of the audience of how they actually work. So you know, it's like, oh, of course it would do that, right? Because I saw it in the five other movies. Well, let's start to talk about some of the things that the movie might have gotten right. In the movie's first act, the uh, B-3 jettisons its nuclear payload before crashing. Is uh, This is a question from another listener. Is this a standard procedure? Uh, are there cases where this may have happened in the rest of the world? And are bombs at risk of going off if they're released from planes in this manner and, and then hit the ground? Well, there's a couple of things that this movie does pretty right. One of the nameless military people in the movie says that the missile wouldn't explode because it's not set to arm. It needs to be armed before falling out of an airplane would cause it to go boom. Uh, it t- says that uh, fi- it could sit in a fire for several hours before any sort of explosion. Now, the more modern nuclear weapons in the U.S. arsenal are designed exactly to do that because they used to be very sensitive to uh, shocks or they were worried about a lightning strike hitting a bomb casing. They're setting up the conventional uh, explosives to be able to, which is used to cause a nuclear explosion, but starting that off by either dropping the bomb or through a lightning strike. So they've built bombs to be safe, and it takes a lot of work to be able to do that. And there's three interesting stories that I wanted to mention and examples of when airplanes jettisoned their bombs in the course of history when they probably didn't want to. So bear with me here. The first case uh, of a major broken arrow was in February 1950 when a B-36 flying between Texas and Alaska during a training exercise had to drop its payload when the plane iced up and was going to crash. But fortunately, the weapon, which was an MK-4 bomb, had its plutonium-uranium core replaced with a lead dummy, so it was an actual core inside of it. But the bomb's conventional explosions went off once the bomb was jettisoned out of the plane and it dropped to 5,000 feet. So we used to have them on automatic timers. Once they dropped to a certain altitude, they would explode, and this one happened. But 
this was the age when the core was not stored inside the bomb itself when they were inside the airplane. That would eventually change, but not in this case. In the, the second example I want to show, was it's what's called the Mars Bluff Incident. It happened in March 1958 at about 4.30 p.m. near Florence, South Carolina. A B-47E Stratajet was having some trouble with its bomb door. A light warned the captain that the door was not secure, so he ordered someone to go back and try to pull the locking pin, which would prevent the door from opening. However, the crew member who was sent back wasn't familiar with the bomb door, and while trying to climb up up over the bomb to look for where this thing was, accidentally pulled down the emergency bomb release handle. Whoops. Whoops. The bomb dropped to the floor of the plane, and because it's really heavy, (laughs) through the plane. The bomb landed right outside of a house on top of where, just moments before, two little girls were playing in a playhouse outside. Fortunately, the MK6 nuclear core of this bomb was not installed in the bomb in the uh, in the airplane. It was stored near the bomb bay. Otherwise, the bomb would have issued a 30 kiloton yield instead of just a conventional explosion, but it still resulted in a crater 75 feet long and 35 feet deep. Surprisingly, though, oh. it's a miracle. None, no Nobody one was, died? No one, no one died. People were hurt, but no one died. But... It was a pretty scary situation there. Well, that's an interesting. You know, we're talking about compartmentalizing. Like, yeah, the guy flying the plane doesn't really know how the bomb doors even work, let alone you know, like arming the thing. Like, it's we saw different. With I mean, people have different missions when they're on these on these flights, and this one wasn't yep. meant to be a. Uh, it was a moving a transporting the bomb from one place to another. It wasn't. Yep. It wasn't during wartime. Um, or at least it wasn't a wartime mission. Another famous example that I want to mention is the Goldsboro incident. This happened near Faro. Pharaoh, Faro, Pharaoh, North Carolina, uh, in January 1961. A B-52 loaded with two MK-39 thermonuclear bombs took off on something what they used to call then a coverall mission. This was when the plane would fly for 24 hours straight in case uh, the USSR decided to first strike and take out the military airstrips. There at least be a bomb in the air that could perform its mission. Well... When an issue arose during refueling during this 24-hour mission, the right wing of the B-52 exploded. It forced the crew to bail out and before the plane eventually snapped into pieces in the air. The bombs were newer designs that were sealed shut, meaning the nuclear core was already inside the bomb, unlike our previous two cases. However, some other safety features were included, such as arming pins that needed to be pulled at an exact sequence in order for the various internal components to work and set off the bomb. Well, when the plane broke apart, one of the bombs fell out of the plane. The arming pins were connected to a wire so that when the bomb falls out of the back of the plane, they're pulled in a certain order. It's how to indicate that they're actually happening. So when they fall through the door, if they were to fall straight out of the plane, like the previous cases, they wouldn't be pulled in the right order. Um, well, the bomb fell at just the right angle, so the detonation sequence was initiated as the bomb parachuted Just by down, falling at a particular it fell, it fell out of the back of the plane, what broken, I mean, the plane broke into pieces, and it right. fell at the angle that it needed to. Hmm. So as it parachuted down to the city, it was armed with that, those various detonating sequences. All of the steps for the bomb to explode were met, except for one. The arm safe switch had not been set to arm during the flight. What would have been required to do this would the radar operator 
would have had to pull a knob on their control panel to set it from from safe to arm. Hmm. Um, that bomb was found buried 18 inches into the ground. Now, the other bomb that was there uh, fell out of the same plane, but it was still attached to the bomb rack. So the arming sequences didn't happen. The pins weren't pulled. But so the detonation was so the detonation wasn't started. But the broken pieces of the bomb and some of the thermonuclear core, uh, when it fell to the ground, they couldn't get it out. So they left it. They buried it um, under concrete and other pieces. And supposedly the arming switch on that second bomb, according to some accounts of this, somehow got turned to arm during the crash. So that first bomb going off, it was fortunate that the radar operator had an earlier been playing around with the knobs and set it to arm. Right. But supposedly the second bomb was set to arm. That may have been just the way the switch was pulled when it hit the ground, but it's hard to tell. But if you're feeling adventurous and you're in the area, you can go visit where the first bomb hit the ground. If you go there, there will be a plaque on what they call the nuclear mishap. It will read, B-52, transporting two nuclear bombs, crashed, January 1961. Widespread disaster adverted. Three crewmen died. And how close was that to a population center? Very close. Hmm. It would have been quite – it would have been a nuclear bomb – explosion that would have set radiation up and down the east coast up and down the east coast not it would yes. not have been a pleasant experience for anyone there um again though these are definitely older bomb designs but they show how dangerous flying with them can be and the amount of precautions that go into keeping them safe the bombs in the movie are a more modern creation they call the uh in the movie they call it the 83 this is actually the b83 it's a variable high-yield gravity bomb dropped from airplanes. It first entered the U.S. service in 1983. Its maximum yield is 1.2 megatons. It's our largest gravity bomb in the arsenal uh, when it was around. Uh, the display in the movie on a little computer display said that it was between 1 and 2 megatons. 2 might be a little bit high, but... The other parts of it, they seem to get pretty right. That that same display says that it was around 14.5 feet long. Uh, the sites that I have said it's about 12 feet long with the missile, the whole bomb itself um, that's dropped out of the airplane. They got the diameter right. They said it was 18 inches in diameter. And about four feet in the front of this is where the actual warhead is. So those four feet is what the warhead that they – that Howie Long was hauling around. Mm-hmm. It's about the whole package, 2,400 pounds total. So – Takes a little bit of effort, but not the warhead itself, but the whole bomb package. It was also one of the first warheads designed from the ground up to be safe and resilient to accidental detonations through the use of insensitive explosives in the implosion trigger. So they're not uh, easily set off from shock or lightning strikes, those kind of things. So that's one of the more unusual elements of this movie. Definitely a Hollywood action movie, but... They actually get a lot right when it comes to the actual depiction of yeah, there's the nuclear a, weapon. There I was mean, like some effort put into the research on this. Right. I mean, it, typically, you know, it's like, oh, we got to add some glitzy lights or, you know, some technology. Well, the, you know, war, here the warhead itself it might I – don't, I don't know what an actual B-83 warhead looks like. I think the, the buttons and the display panel I think were put on by the bad guys in this movie. I was joking during the movie that the – the size of the buttons, which are great for the audience to be able to see what number they're pushing. Right. The whole thing looks like uh, 
the kind of remote control that you buy your grandmother who can't see very well. Like those size giant buttons. Well, I was thinking more of like uh, when you got old enough where, you know, you, you pressure your parents to give you your own landline mm. phone and you can go to like Walmart or something and get that oversized that you know, buttons for the, the phone or whatever. It reminded me of that. But well, So I think that was added on is for the for the circuitry that the uh, the, the, the Deke put on there. Right. Um, so I, that's not what they actually have on there. But what these bombs, the B-83 do, does have is they have permissive action links. These are the PAL system that they put into place. They're usually six-digit codes with a million possible combinations. Then they also have what they call a limited try function, as they had in the movie. It permanently locks the weapon if the wrong number is entered a certain number of times. Although, it doesn't make any sense that Deacons can rewire the PAL to arm the weapon, since that would defeat the very purpose of having a PAL. But he's he so- was just asking questions, you know, to the guys who were doing the circuitry. It's like, hey, wait a minute, just random question, random hypothetical. Well, he probably promised the guy who told him all the information that he would spar with him and teach him the wonders that is Teach you that boxing. Yeah. The interesting thing about these bombs is they can explode when they fall out of an airplane, when they're usually dropped out of an airplane. They can explode however you want them to. They can detonate in free fall. They can make contact with the ground after gently landing with a parachute and then explode. They can do air burst, ground burst. For example, this is something I didn't know about until doing the research. The the term for this is called laydown delivery. This is where a bomb is on a timer once it hits the ground. It's used to be more effective while hitting hardened targets such as like a submarine holding pen or hit buried targets with a shockwave. Um, maybe, just maybe, this is what Deacons was able to rewire, but still it requires the bombs drop from an airplane at a high so, altitude. So it would drop, it would parachute, parachute down, yep. and then it would literally just land softly to the ground. And then and be then on a timer, a timer so. and then go. Yeah. Interesting. But the Sounds bo- so nice. Take a nice nap with the lay-down delivery. But the bombs um, are loaded onto the B-83. They're loaded onto different aircrafts uh, over the course of the history of, of the bomb. Uh, they've been on B-52. The B-1, the B-2, the movie calls the plane that Deacons and uh, Hale were flying a B-3, which is doesn't exist. Um, but it's also been flown on the F-15, F-16, F-18, and a couple others. But now, surprisingly when we're watching this, the Air Force is working on developing the B-3, a new long-range strike bomber that will probably call the B-3 and probably is going to be fielded in 2025. So, so the next one, obviously... For the next John Woo movie in 2017, will have to be the B four. The B four. Yep. Obviously, I would love to see a sequel to this. I mean, probably the the federal government or defense contractor designing this B three is probably taking some cues from Broken Arrow 1996. I mean, I don't know if I should be proud of that fact <laughs> or scared of that fact. But here's just if you haven't already turned off the channel, um, there's a few other random facts about this bomb that I think are interesting. It was also one of the first considered originally to be part of the George W. Bush administration's robust nuclear earth penetrating program. These are what's colloquially known as the bunker buster bombs. These are ones that you would launch from uh, an airplane and hit a, a hardened target or a bunker underground. Usually they would say Saddam Hussein's WMD cache would be hidden under the ground and you need a bunker a bunker busting bomb that can penetrate into that area, not you know break, and then it'd be able to explode. The B eighty three was also uh, considered to this, along with what eventually was used, the B sixty one eleven. Today, 
the B-83 is likely to be scrapped in favor of a more advanced version of the B-61-11 bomb. Also, the B-83 bomb in that bomb package is often used in real life in warhead simulations and studies about asteroid impact avoidance. So when an asteroid is coming to hit the world and we talk about using a nuclear bomb to stop that, often the B-83 is used to knock the asteroid off course. Probably a half dozen of them or so, but that's usually what it's used for. And I'm mm-hmm. sure we'll talk about that in, at some point in, uh, in uh, Armageddon if we ever get Once to that one. Once we start our Michael Bay podcast, oh. we could uh, have a, a field day with nuclear uh, issues. You can host that one, Joel. <laughs> I think it's interesting. So after all this stuff that we just talked about, there's a mixed record about what they've done in terms of making the movie portray nuclear th- things correctly or incorrectly. We looked, I looked up a picture of what a B-83 bomb looks like from the outside, and the images that they show in the movie are really close. Almost identical. Almost identical. And they didn't uh, – even though that they, were, they put all this effort into it. Joel, why don't you read this quote from uh, Entertainment Weekly from 1996? Right. So the, the reviewer said, quote, Even the nukes seem weirdly innocuous. They're thin, featureless mini-rockets that look like props in a junior high play. It's funny because the bombs are probably the most accurate thing in the movie, as we've talked about. So, I I mean, my sense is this is a situation where the Hollywood magic and the the extra stuff that's inaccurate actually shapes our perception about what must be accurate. That, well, there's no extra panels or Mm -hmm. cool circuitry on that thing. There's no neon lights on the side. What is this, some junior high play uh, nuclear weapons, you know, thing that we're looking at? But, yeah, exactly. So why why would the reviews seem to to point and pull that out of what they saw in the movie? They certainly didn't mention any of the other crazy things that happened in this that – the bomb, how what the bomb looks like when it goes off, or the very idea of we covered this in previous episodes, like using a nuclear bomb for hostage and nuclear terrorism and those kind of things. Right. How to go to go through that? No, they what they were focused on was what it looked like, and it looks like what it, it looks like, and it didn't look cool enough. It didn't look basically. Cool. That's so what, what would saying. they? What would this reviewer do if some uh, DOD official was here? Is actually what they look like? They would say this right. is boring. It doesn't look like we think it looks like in. True Lies. At least the True Lies one. Um, look like a, a snow cone machine? Water heater? Well, I just think it's interesting the disparities between what uh, media people may expect nuclear bombs to look like and actually what they look like. So so I will give John Woo and his team some props on their props for actually having the bomb look like what it looks like. So those are the nuclear points that I wanted to talk about. But it's still a movie, and Joel is the resident movie guide here. Why don't you uh, lead us a discussion here about what you thought about the movie as a movie? Yeah, I, th- I think it's worth noting that, you know, it's obviously, you know, a Hollywood action movie. No plot is going to be perfect. There are going to be some, you know, give and take. All right, we'll give you that the characters decided to go this way when they obviously could have gone a different direction and cut out 20 minutes of the the back and forth. But I was surprised, we talked about this kind of at different points in the movie, how well the movie held up uh, since 1996. You know, I thought for, you know, there's some interesting plot holes, plot craters perhaps, Uh. um, where, you know, for example, you had Christian or Hale, uh, Christian Slater's character, he tries to 
um, short circuit the, the first bomb and ends up starting the timer. Mm-hmm. And then they say, well, let's bury it, you know, or take it down deep into the mine to let it go off. And, you know, Tim, you actually pointed this out as in real time as we were talking about, it, we hadn't even planned for this. We thought, wait, well, if one was going to go off, why not take the second one down there and put in the code Do the so same you thing. start a timer so they can't steal the second one and and get out before the first one detonates? That would clearly take care of both problems, obviously, with a big explosion. But if one's going to explode anyways, you might as well take advantage yeah, and you take the other, the other you one. take the other one out of commission by arming it. Now it looks like John Travolta was able to have another code to disarm it, and then that's when he and that's when he took the timer from twenty five minutes to thirteen minutes. Right. But Christian Slater didn't know that. Right. Exactly. Seems like yeah, the guy's pretty smart. You should just do. They should. They should have done a version of that, or I don't know, hit it with a rock or something would have been worked pretty well too. Right. And I, I don't know. I, I guess there are a few other things like the government response. Mm-hmm. That's one thing I always look at in these movies, whether it's nuclear or otherwise. If you have some kind of broad catastrophe or disaster movies and you know the director the creators they'll always talk about how you know because this they want to take a large disaster but really break it down to the individual stories Mm -hmm. of of individual human Mm -hmm. interactions and you know it's a story about a father and a son or a a husband and wife or something like that but in these situations it's it's you know you have live nuclear weapons and at a certain point you know that they have been stolen they're being held ransom for hundreds of millions of dollars. You would think that the the entirety of the U.S. government apparatus, the compartmentalized apparatus, would spring into action. And yet in the last third of the movie, you see maybe three helicopters. These are the ones that haven't exploded yet. <laughs> Those three helicopters and maybe a dozen military officers in any given shot. Well, it's it's funny because Trying it's like, to it's like the colonel, the colonel that was at that base, who was in charge of that base, was the guy in the helicopter shooting the gun, and the pilot, Christian Slater, was also the guy who was in charge of jumping onto the train to stop the bomb. Like, don't you have other guys that are better trained for these kind of things? And, and there was one scene when they bring in Hale, Christian Slater's character, and they and they say the prisoner is secured, and then the colonel goes, "Okay, thank you," and then the two of them just walk away. And mm-hmm. all the military guys just are in the background, just standing around. And I always thought it was weird. Is like, okay, if we're going to go into combat here to take out this nuclear weapon, maybe we should bring those guys. There were there were more people in the Pentagon around that big table right. debating what to do than people actually operator operators doing right. the thing that they're talking yeah. about. And I, and I get it that you have to. Uh, you have to divorce yourself from that because you need the individual attention because you wouldn't want 300 guys attacking the train because obviously any one of them could blow up you know, Deacons and Howie Long's character mm-hmm. and stuff like that. But so you need that one-on-one matchup, which literally turns into a boxing match. But it's just one of those things where I'm always just hitting my forehead saying, where is everyone else? Is this a serious situation or not? Right now, it's an action movie. What are you gonna do? But that—that's always a big thing. And the, the other one of the other plot holes I always thought about was um, if De- if people knew Deacon stole the bomb, was he planning on always staying pri- like behind the scenes and anonymous? Because clearly he did it. How would he get money to spend? He talked about being in like going to Volvo and and making cars. Five percent is is Volvo really gonna want this guy who just. Well, he had a, a broker. He said he had a broker. a broker. So, you know, that's going to take care of everything. You know. Well, good luck with that. It's not like someone that stole a bomb and is remaining anonymous in terms of right. 
Well, he, he was, does submit the video, right? He sends the video to the federal government, and he says, you know, if you don't pay the money, you know, it's going to go boom. That's the, 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 the formal term for it. So people, they know they know it was him. Yeah, it's a, you know, because he wanted to, like, stick it to him, right? Because, you know, Hale's character says, you deacons, you've been passed over for promotion for so many years. You want to stick it to him and stuff like that. But, you know, it'd be interesting. Well, it, 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 I'd be curious to see how someone could actually maintain a low profile, even if they had a couple hundred million dollars mm-hmm. uh, lying around to, you know, after fallout of a literal nuclear explosion. You know, John Woo, he's had some some hits. He's had some movies that I didn't particularly care for. I thought his slow motion dove thing is There's awesome. So in, much slow-mo in, in this in movie. In proper doses, but I think he hit peak slow motion in Mission Impossible 2. Which unfortunately doesn't deal with nuclear weapons. Maybe when we get to our biological weapons podcast, we can <laughs> go into that in great detail. I, I thought this was a movie where, you know, I don't want to say it's like a B movie where it's it's so bad it's great, but you know, I, I thought he did have enough of his trademark elements: slow motion, you know, butterflies instead of doves. But I'll, I'll set that aside because I love me some some slow motion doves. But I, I thought it, it was just enough of his trademark with kind of a, a standard action movie where it, it kind of worked, even setting aside some of the plot holes. Okay. Well, you have a, a new segment here that you want to run. Um, we're still working on a name. We might call it, you know, nuclear most offensive or nuclear offensive or something along the lines of, of this, but you want to mention what you want to talk about? Yeah. So I thought, you know, it'd be interesting. We, we talk about all these things, whether they're technical or, or plot holes I thought it'd be good to, you know, for each of us to kind of throw out one thing that that, that we thought was kind of the the worst offense of the movie. It could be, you know, oh, how how did they not mm-hmm. blow up the second nuclear bomb? How could they, you know, in other movies they may get the depiction of the nuclear weapon or nuclear protocol completely off. Um and so this is our chance to to highlight what's the one thing that really uh, you know, hits the what was most offensive to us, right? What was most offensive to us? So, Tim, what what, what do you got? Anything that really strikes? Obviously, we thought the nuclear weapon was pretty accurate. Yeah, it was. I mean, the bomb the bomb looked like what it was supposed to look like. I think the biggest thing for me would be when they blew it up underground. Uh, they tried hard in terms of the imagery looking correct, but that shock wave traveling too slow and the create the crater being created so quickly and that EMP going off from underground, blowing up that helicopter and sending it down. That, to me, was probably the biggest offense. I think that gives a bad impression to audiences about what nuclear weapons do and what they look like when they go off underground. And I think it does a disservice to all those who went into this John Woo movie looking to be educated like a documentary. (laughs) I think people came away with this knowing less about nuclear weapons than they did going in. And that's just something I can't tolerate. Just think about it. what if John Woo did the PBS documentary, you know, like Ken Burns was sick one day. And so they're like, John, mm-hmm. Ken is out sick. We need some help. Can you work on this? Well, well what you'd have is, you know, you kind of have like the, the banjo playing in the background and you have the panning of the photos, mm-hmm. but they'd be in slow motion. So they'd be even slower than they already are. I think if you if you take Civil War documentaries and you add lots of slow-mo, I think that's closer – to what you'll get with a John Woo documentary on nuclear weapons. Just throw some doves, give them some sunglasses and trench coats. It'll be great. <laughs> uh, well, I, I, for me, you know, I've already kind of foreshadowed it with my mention of the government response. I think I'm going to give it to that. 
Um, I just love the individual performances of Christian Slater and John Travolta. John Travolta, you, you could tell he was enjoying There's just lots being of, a bad guy. Lots of close-up eye acting by John Travolta. Right, right. Uh, and you could tell he put a lot of thought into how he would smoke his cigarette. You know, just a lot of very specific, mm-hmm. intentional actions. He's like he's always giving the peace sign right. while he's smoking a cigarette, right. which might be – The an, irony. You know, the irony, yeah, right. is someone still in a nuclear bomb. And I hosts, mean, he put but, hours into that prep. Very yeah. good. Okay, yeah. well, now, now the, this makes sense. But the one thing I, I really think was the worst offender for me was, you know, just the disconnect between, you know, what's going on on the ground and – that you know that random faceless Pentagon room where you had literally thirty five generals, and you know we all know the action movies where there's thirty guys with you know with generals medals mm-hmm. and stuff like that sitting around, and they're just on a conference line, and then <laughs> their their sole mission is just to clap at the end when something when the bad guy gets stopped. You didn't even have that in this. We movie. didn't get this. They were so shut out of the movie. I, I thought their only role was to kind of be a transition point between one action scene to the next so that they could provide the audience with background on, oh, well, if this bomb goes off, this is how many people that are going to die. Or, oh, no, we got to talk to somebody. But that's not, not a, that's not a John Woo movie. The, the, <laughs> the government doesn't exist in the third act of a John Woo movie. It's just the main stars and, right. and what they do on or off trains at high, rate, high speeds. Yeah. I mean, if, you know, if they're out in the ocean somewhere or something like that. But I, I, I just felt like... You know, if they had any sense of where they might be going, it's not like you can't send whole units to two different directions. You know, you could still go after Salt Lake City mm. and also Denver at the same time. You would, you would think so. Well, that's why they should have – if they called it a pinnacle broken arrow, they would have exactly. gotten the attention of the Joint Chiefs. Otherwise, right now, which is just some low-level mis- training exercise. Right. Well, I talked about how this movie may not have done a great service to people that were watching it. But I've got some places where you can go to to learn more. Obviously, I've already mentioned the Stephen Younger book, but I want to rec- recognize that one again. The, it's called The Bomb, A History. It's a great account of how these bombs work and why they work the way they do, whether it be safety purposes or preventing theft. Another great account of different types of accidents that have occurred, in addition to Command and Control, which we can recommend every single episode. There's a book called Atomic Accidents, A History of Nuclear Meltdowns and Disasters by James Mahaffey, M-A-H-A-F-F-E-Y. I'm not good at pronouncing names. Uh, from 2014, it's a very good. There's a chapter and just on these close calls uh, that we've experienced, and I will also link to some good, fun underground nuclear explosions on uh, that are on YouTube. We'll link to that in the podcast notes. So be sure to check those out uh, during a lunch break or anytime you want to. Thanks for listening to another episode of Supercritical, the nuclear movie podcast. If you have any suggestions for future episodes or guests you want us to have come on, or just want to tell us what we got wrong in this episode, there are a couple ways you can do that. We are on Facebook.com slash Supercritical Podcast. We'll announce the next movie on that as well as Twitter, which is at Nuclear Podcast. You can also reach us via email the old-fashioned way, supercriticalpodcast at gmail.com. If you've enjoyed this program, and would uh, we would really appreciate it if you would recommend it uh, to your friend or consider subscribing on iTunes and leaving a review. really helps us find new listeners and grow the show. Now, until next time, this has been Tim Westmeyer. And Joel. And remember, if it's pop culture and radioactive, we're bound to get super critical about it. Have a good one.